Blog Talk Radio. Blood Run. 
And it's interesting that you bring in, you know, like the aspect, you know, of the running aspect and everything else. But you've also done because, you know, she's a biochemist. And that lends to a lot of different ways that you can kind of, you know, Emma can kind of go. And when you start getting into that realm and that field, because, you know, let's say, you know, let's face it, I guess you want to say back in the campaign trail, that seemed the last 17 years on our last, you know, presidential thing, (laughs) you know, pharmaceutical stuff was a really big topic and a little big thing coming up, and it still kind of is. Um, How are you able to kind of play on that? Because it is like in people's minds, and now they kind of have a better maybe understanding of how things work. I don't know. But you're able to kind of play on that a little bit. I am. I mean, I think think with Emma Coldridge, I usually look for – we have an antibiotic resistance, so I'll look for things that are, are bacteria. In this case, it's smallpox. It actually arose out of a true story. So the NIH was, had moved offices, I don't know, 15 years ago, and apparently didn't clean out some old closet. When they finally got around to it years and years and years later, they found a box of vials. Well, they tested the vials, and it turns out most of the vials contained live virus that could have been used as a biochemical weapon. And one of the viruses in that, in that closet was smallpox which we all believe had been eradicated, and it is supposed to be under lock and key, whatever remains. So I read that. That happened in 2012, and I was reading an article about it thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, they, they weren't supposed to survive in an old dusty closet. They're supposed to be under lock and key, but they're also supposed to be refrigerated. So it kind of got me thinking, you know, the whole Jurassic Park thing, life will find yep. a way, right? I mean, we, right. we laugh about that, but... It's not funny. I mean, these, these viruses survived. So that started the blood run idea. So Emma Caldridge is in Western Africa. She's on a humanitarian mission delivering vaccines to small, small villages, and someone's hidden uh, smallpox among the vaccines to try and sell it to a bad actor. And that kind of jump-started that idea for me on blood run. And it's a fascinating subject. And, yes, with her background, I can go anywhere with it, but it also gives me an opportunity. I'll be honest, I love researching all that kind of stuff. So it gives me a chance to look into this stuff. Right. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, that, that's the best part. You get to have fun and someone pays you money for it. Yeah, but, exactly. You know, you know, the other thing is, yeah, when you're talking, I mean, when you're looking at a show just like The Walking Dead, I mean, that's all about, you know, uh, disease and what things can do. And I think that that's probably the one thing that a lot of people, when you look at catastrophes, you know, zombie apocalypse or whatever, it's going to come from disease. It's going to come from something that is going to come out of nothing, and then all of a sudden it's just going to be everywhere, and they're not going to know what goes on. But when you're using something like a smallpox, which you think is eradicated, it's amazing to me that the thing is people would use that so carelessly, but that is when an author goes, ha, carelessness, that's when I can use it. And, that, exactly and that's kind of a funny right. thing, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is, this is crazy. And like with Dead Asleep, so what I didn't realize, and now I look all the time for this, and I hope your listeners do too, I was reading about Sleeping Beauty. And it turns out Sleeping Beauty was, they think, based on an actual virus that used to be fairly, well, not common, but was, was widespread, in which people would fall asleep for weeks on end and then suddenly wake up. And so that's they think was the genesis of part of the Sleeping Beauty legend. Well, in Dead Asleep, she finds that virus. And the reason I found it is I was reading about this virus, and I noted that somebody, I think a teenager in Australia many, many years ago, about 15 years ago now, 
actually got this virus and fell asleep for three weeks. And it took them a long time to figure out that, that that's what this was. So you can, you can go a lot of fast. As a thriller writer, you know, your job is to take something, and it, it's fiction. So, of course, you know, you, you expand upon it. But, it, you know, if you take a real nugget of what's going on and then expand upon that, it's always kind of interesting as well. And now that we're in book five in the series, you can kind of look back one through four. And what's one of the startling things that you see just as yourself if you were to go back and go back to one and now look at five to kind of see how Emma has progressed, I guess you want to say, as a character and kind of expanded and, you know, all the secondary ones that have kind of expanded their roles too. You know, what's your biggest kind of surprise that you see from the series so far now that you're through book five? I think what surprises me is, there's a, a, a broader understanding of women's roles, too, right now. Right now we're hearing a lot about that. But there's also a broader understanding of pandemic flu and things like that. When she first, in the very first book, it was really just about an average person in unusual circumstances. She's down in the Colombian jungle. The paramilitary group that downs the plane in Running from the Devil uh, takes everyone else hostage. She's thrown free of the plane, and she tracks behind them to disrupt their plans. There is a disease in that that I discovered later, but as she progressed through these books, she now works part-time for a Department of Defense contractor, and they send her out to look for unusual situations that occur. And that's been a really great hook for her to be able to expand what she does. Now she doesn't do it kind of like fall into a circumstance. She's often sent there and starts rooting around as a detective would to figure out just what exactly is going on. So it's a cool transition. Um, gives me a chance to set her all over the world. She's always fighting crime all over the world. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been interesting. It's been, it's been a way to really expand on what she does. In her next book, she's coming back to America. I won't say what's going on there, but, yeah, we'll, we'll keep the suspense going. But she's back in America for some other type of uh, problem here in America. This one I don't think will be a virus, but I'm not quite sure yet. Right. And, by the way, a lot of the readers do send me emails uh, about uh, what happened just recently. Oh, The Ninth Day. So that one I think was the third book, and I talked about leprosy and uh, an unusual application. I won't say again how that book comes about, but now something must have come up that it's actually true, which I knew but I had kind of couched it in fictional terms. And readers are sending me links showing how, what's been happening with that particular disease, and I love that. I mean, readers are like, hey, I read about this in Ninth Day, and I thought you'd be interested. I love that because mm-hmm. I always read the links and I always thank them. So if, they, if anyone's out there and hears and sees something that I've written about in the past books, please send me a link. I just, I just love to learn about it. Yeah, I mean, and that's the real way that fans kind of engage with authors uh, you know, it's a little different when you're not when when your main character doesn't really have a profession, you know, per se. And I guess I would, you know, go along the lines of let's just say like a reacher, you know, kind of a rogue guy. But when you have a character that is like, you know, a biochemist, and you're speaking about these kinds of things, yeah, it's a great way for the the, the fans to engage a little bit more with the author in that retrospect. Yes, and I think, and the fans always have something interesting to say. Some help me out. Some will say, hey, this. This happened here. This happened here. Um, I just, I just love getting the emails from fans. And since, you know, I've been writing for Robert Ludlum. I've been writing his Covert One series, and that's a, co- a group of covert operatives. 
So a lot of the fans of Ludlam have also been in touch. They're, by the way, they've been lovely to me. I was really nervous about starting that, uh, that series. Yeah, but the fans have been lovely, and they also send me some stuff about covert operations and you know things like that 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 come out in the news that I might have missed. And again, it's very helpful. I always look at it. I always figure, oh, that's interesting. So it gives me a chance to really learn as well. Well, I mean, this is your first, you know, full-length Emma Caldridge book in, what, five years, I think, um, back around Dead Asleep, because you did you did do like a three-part novella, which was really cool that you kind of had um, going on. But, yeah. you know, when, you're, when you come back five years later from, you know, writing the series, what was kind of your biggest challenge uh, to making sure that, first of all, you had to remember everything. So I'm sure you had to go back and read a lot of notes and figure out making sure that the characters had the right color car and things like that because fans will tell you, no, 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 that's not what they drove. You can't use that. Um, uh, you know, the little things. So what was your biggest kind of challenge coming back five years later, you know, from uh, and rediscovering honestly, Emma? The challenge, yeah, honestly, the challenge. Well, in between, I was writing Ludlum. Right? I wrote the three novellas, Risk, Gone, and Run, and those mm-hmm. were those are on E only. Those are kind of three shorts that link together, and those have been consistently downloaded. So, I was kind of watching those and I, while I was writing Ludlum, and then I wrote a nonfiction book in between. Um, I contributed to a nonfiction anthology uh, about wrongful convictions, kind of based on serial. It's called Anatomy of Innocence. So I've been really busy in these past five, year, five years. So returning to Emma, the one thing that I think I really had to to think about is I had to get back into the head of a soul, a biochemist, you know, because the Cobert One is a group. And then I had to also remember, it's been five years, so I have to kind of bring the reader up to date, too, about what's been going on. And in this book, Emma has suffered a loss. Um, and I mentioned that. One of the reviewers actually uh, noted that and loved it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because I don't normally – go into that kind of personal part of her life. But I did this time because I thought, well, you know, things have, things have gone on. It's been five years. And the reviewer did notice it and liked it, so that was, that was beneficial. So I had to kind of bring, bring people back up to date about what she's doing. And now she's a bit different, as I say. She's, she's got her own company. She's hired to do things. It's not like she just was in the wrong place at the wrong time as she was in the beginning. So all of that kind of contributed. I was able to to get it going again. And once I started, oh, my gosh, I really missed this character, and I didn't realize how much until I started writing it. And then I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I can I can get back to Emma, who kind of started my career and started all everything for me. And it's also just a fun a fun area to have a strong female character, but who also, you know, she has this loss. And there's always this thing in, in this book, that loss kind of hangs over her, and you don't really learn about it till close to the end of the book, but it's there. Mm. Yeah. Now, and the other thing, like you said, you know, you're writing a lot of lemon, you kind of did nonfiction, and you did some things in between. So you as an author, you know, you, you kind of have a little bit more weapons in the, in, the, in the box now to kind of write a little bit. So are fans going to see a little bit of different Jamie Favreletti now um, going forward from, like, book four just to book five just because – now that you you do have you know you have been writing a little bit different and sometimes you know those things seep in uh and, and into your writing and that's kind of how it goes forward so will fans see a little bit of a different Jamie Favreletti moving forward I think so I think they're going to see a little bit yes 
Absolutely. It it does inform your writing, especially the nonfiction. It was about wrongfully convicted people. So uh, it was with a group, Gail Lins, uh, Sarah Paretsky, Lee Child. We all took a chapter, and we were given a wrongfully convicted person story to tell in a chapter. And it's called Anatomy of Innocence. All the proceeds go to the Innocence Life After Innocence Project. And that changed all of us. I don't think any of us walked away from that real-life story, right, without yeah. being rattled and about things that real-life things that can happen to people. And I think it changes the way you write a thriller. You're a little bit more empathetic, I think, in some respects, to things that normally you wouldn't, you wouldn't have heard about, really, until you read about it, which is what I love about books. And also in my personal case, I had... Uh, these past few years, I've been dealing with the illnesses of my parents, which, you know, I had very, very healthy parents. I mean, you know, people just don't have, they didn't even take a pill. They've never had to take a pill their entire life. And then they were both diagnosed with very terrible things, cancer and Alzheimer's. So mm. it, it, uh, so I yeah. changed. I think in the past couple of years, I've gone from being that person who's like, oh, wow, my parents are young and healthy and everything's great, to holy Toledo, anything can happen uh-huh. Where the heck did this come from? So now I'm a little bit more aware, maybe, I don't know, maybe of what, I don't want to be down. I'd be a downer here in this, in this interview, but I'm a little bit more aware of things like that. And yeah. clearly working toward, uh, with Emma, I, I now can use that to talk about some of the research that's going on in these areas, which I love too. So I've been giving to some organizations, and I always ask them what's on the cutting edge because I do want to put that into the next Emma book, you know, what's, what's cutting edge, because there's a lot of exciting and positive things going on in both those areas. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the same thing that we have in common, because my dad now has been going through Alzheimer's for a year, um, oh. and he'll be, he'll be the fourth. <laughs> yeah, it makes me a little nervous, because he'll be the, be the fourth one, and it's kind of like my family that has, like, had Alzheimer's. Now, they say it's not genetic, and it's not going to do not. that, but... Yeah. Yeah, no, I so, know. But, you I know, had you that get a little too. worried. A couple grandparents have had it, and then my dad's had it. And I'm like, oh my lord, you know. So <laughs> I but, know. Well, when it happened, it's my mother that was diagnosed, and you know, it's never been in our family because it is not hereditary. They have not linked right, it to hereditary. So, so don't be nervous. There's a very good chance yeah. it won't hit you. But um, it's never been in our family, right? We've never had any of that, and uh, nothing, and. You know, we've had people, these are Irish women, so they, you know, I don't know if you know anything about the Irish, but we used to joke in our family, Irish women will live forever because they're just great, they're strong, and she is too. Yeah, we're but, German, so we have the same yeah, thing. Yeah, there you go, yeah. <laughs> and my mother was very strong, but um, she got diagnosed, and she was a jazz singer most of her life. And this is just a, a weird theory that I've been really looking into secondhand smoke. She never smoked, but I've always been looking into that uh, pollution as a possible aspect, at least in her case. Could she have all those days and nightclubs and smoky nightclubs? Because I remember going into those clubs, and you could cut the smoke with a knife. And oh, yeah. Never, yeah. And she never smoked because she was a singer. You couldn't, you know, it would ruin her vocal cords. But right. I always wondered about that. And even now, I'm. my family tells me, no, 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 you know, that's, nobody knows yet. But I'll tell you, I'm looking into it, and not that there's anything I can do now. My mom did pass away in October 2015, but um, I I really keep an eye on that disease and I give to the cause because I want to see that disease really, you know, I hope we can address it soon. So I did put in a little bit of loss with Emma. It's it's just It just came out of me and I thought, well, it, it's kind of heartfelt for a thriller and the, and the, and the cr- 
critic noticed noted that and said, "Wow, I don't normally read such stuff in a thriller," and liked it. And I thought, "Well, I'm leaving it because that's kind of where I think all of us have all of us have experienced loss and are yes. experiencing it now. And I think it's something that just informs the character more." Yeah, I mean, the the one thing that I've noticed about it too, in looking at it, is aluminum. I no longer buy deodorant that has any aluminum in it. Really? Um, oh yeah. So I do nothing. I, I try not to do anything aluminum. So I'm really watching the aluminum part and of that. So yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm gonna give a shout out right now. Tom's is what I use for my deodorant. Yeah. It has no, no aluminum. And you know, so I don't. I'm uh, like, I, this this sounds terrible, yeah. but I I have. I don't use deodorant unless I'm going to an event. Like today, I don't use it. But most of the time, I I think my my body is balanced out, or I'll use baking soda or something like that. Not yeah. because I'm afraid of aluminum. I'm, I haven't looked into that honestly, but yeah, mostly there you because, go, aluminum. Yeah, mostly because I run just about every day, so I'm showering constantly as it is. It's not sure. an issue. But I I agree with you. I think who knows what direction it'll go. There's a lot of things. Yeah. You know, it's just like ulcers. For years, I had a great-grand aunt. She used to tell me about her ulcers, and she used to watch her diet, nothing spicy. And then, of course, we find out in the 80s or something that it was just a bacteria that could have been solved with an antibiotic. So sometimes you go in wrong directions, at least with science. They, you know, they're always right. kind of updating. And, and then a lot, of, a lot of people get frustrated. You know, the science says, well, this was good, but guess what? It's not anymore. And to me, I'm kind of like that. I throw my hands up. Well, well, guys, you had me doing this, and now it's wrong. But on the other hand, science takes a long time, and they, they continue to research. And I think what I like about that is if, if it changes, they tell you, well, we thought this, but we didn't. It leaves you a little out there and wondering what's going on. But on the other hand, in the end, you want to have these you know, clinical trials. You want to have actual science behind what they're doing because otherwise we're just, you know, we're – like say we're avoiding secondhand smoke and that's not the issue at all. So and not that avoiding secondhand smoke or aluminum will kill us, just that it's no. you know. And that's another yeah, thing. I mean, I, it's I just, it's just like another it's just another ingredient to right. to get rid of. It's kind of like I kinda of look at it as dieting. It's like, you know, just eliminate it, like eliminating sugar or eliminating white foods. You know, just eliminate it because it's not needed. So why be around it? I guess Yeah, I have that thing, you know, if it's if it doesn't yeah. hurt hurt you it it you know then it's not going to harm you to be healthier, so why not go for sure. it? But also, the, it's just it's it's interesting to me. So I've been doing a lot of research in those areas, and uh, I and I understand what you're going through with Alzheimer's. It is uh, oh, it is dreadful. God, yeah. It is dreadful, and it is it's kind of it kind of throws you back watching this and uh, saying, wow, you know, this is. This is really this is a dire situation here, and I was that was uh, quite a learning experience for me. Not that I wasn't aware of it; it just hadn't struck our family. So we had other things that we're dealing with. We had a lot of lung cancer because my dad and the Italians all smoked. Man, did they smoke? Oh yeah. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah. that was funny. I remember saying to him, Dad, you shouldn't smoke, and he said. I said, you go to your doctor and talk about that? He said, you know, I told him I've been doing it since I was 11, and the doctor said, best you keep on. I said, Dad, he did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> he said, hey, he said, no one likes a quitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that man. But, uh, so, you know, you know that's what I would say. You know, you sit there and I say, I'm like, hey, you know what, they – 
No one likes a quitter. You, everybody always says anything. If you're going to start something, finish it. No one likes a quitter. So, so I'm not going. I'm, I'm going to quit. I, you always tell me to start it and finish it. I can't be quitting in the middle of yeah. it, right? I got to finish it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's really. I, I used funny. to say that when I smoked and I was younger, and I'm like, hey, no one likes a quitter. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Quit. Yeah, I've never smoked, so I don't know. But I, my family and I were like, oh, dad, you know. So all that stuff comes into play. And with Emma Caldridge, there are some things in the book where I have her debunk some things that are not scientific. Uh, uh-huh. There's a lot of superstition in, the, in various parts of the world, both in, um, in the Caribbean. There was quite a bit of things that I learned about the people. They don't really believe, but, you know, the voodoo tradition was started there. So, um, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about that tradition. So sometimes I'll throw things like that in there. Um, in Dead Asleep, I did that. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a fun, uh, interesting series, thriller series to continue. And I'm really happy to have this, this new book coming out. And I think with any luck, we'll have another one in a year. We won't have this five-year break that we had. And and that's the thing I was just going to ask. So you're going to be staying in Emma World for, for a while now. You're still doing Ludlum, though, and so you're going to be kind of doing both, I guess? Well, Ludlum is currently on hold for a moment oh. while they're looking into a television show, I believe. I'm not sure okay. exactly where that stands. Uh, so I will do another Emma the next year. I have a th- historical thriller that I wrote. Oh. You talk about what's new, how things are changing. I decided to put all this research I had for something into a historical thriller, and I gave it to my agent. We'll see where that lands. Uh, okay. Loved that one. And now I'm thinking maybe I do one Emma a year and then another book, possibly the historical. And I'm I'm toying with the idea of either using a pen name so the readers understand that, okay, now you're picking up present day, Jamie Favoletti, and now you're picking up historical, kind of like Nora Roberts and J.D. Sure, Rob. J.D. Robb. Yes, but I haven't decided how, go, how to go forward with that. I was actually going to throw that out to the to the readers and see what they prefer when they when they pick up an author and they know that the author does separate lines like that. So we'll see. Right, right. now my, my goal is to, to bring it out probably under my name, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, that's a tough one today, in today's day and age, I think. I think it was a little easier back then, back, a little further back. But in today's day and age when, you know, the marketing and whatnot, the one thing that you don't want to have to do is remarket your, a whole new name. You, do, you still want people to know it's you. And I think that's right. the one thing because you don't want to have to try to, you know, go out and, and, and do this whole new name and try to do this whole new, you know, marketing campaign and whatnot. I think that's that's very difficult. So I love the idea of you writing in the historical thing. And, and, and yeah, put a pen name on it as long as people know it's you. But then they know, oh, if I read under this name, I'm going to get this book. And if I read under Jamie's name, I'm going to get this book. Yeah. Right. But I mean, there's going to be a rough one right now. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a tough one. And I'm – I'm 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 very cognizant of that fact, but I also want the readers to understand what they're getting. You know, I guess you could read the back cover exactly. of the book; it's not hard. But right. you know, just just right. for a future reference kind of thing, I'm I'm toying with that idea. And Blood Run was such a fun thing to write because um, fun is relative, I guess. It's a thriller. It's what, what I love about it is my books end up. She, she's a heroine. She's not a dark character. She's she's got sadness in her life, but she is definitely. Um, tries to do for the good of all and that's been a really fun thing to readdress and it's it's i think blood run in, in terms of this this latest novel i think what's different about it too is she's in a, an area where other people are helping her she's not 
the expert in the area, and she needs help from the local population, and they're lovely, and they help her too. And so you get a whole group, a whole group of people helping her get across the finish line. And I loved writing such a cooperative group. So I think you're going to see more of that kind of cooperation. There's always been that in my books, but in this case, she's really helped by a group of people who kind of ferry, ferry her along in an area she's unfamiliar with. And in the end, the final scene, there are teenagers helping her, there's elderly people, everybody's kind of pulling toward a common cause. And so, you know, Blood Run does, does go a little bit differently from that perspective. It's not just this one hero saves the world at all. It's been a lot well, of Well, Jamie, we want, to, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Wish you nothing but the best and have fun at the conference that you're at. We'll, you know, see you on the road. The best place to find out is just go to your website, jamiefeverletty.com, and that's where you're going to have all the information that people can find out, everything uh, they want to know and, and follow you on all your social media. So that's the best place for them to go. Thanks, John. Great being here. I'm going to hit it in the car and hit it to Milwaukee. <laughs> go hit it. Have a good one, and we will talk with you. Well, you could have ran, but that means we'll <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little wet out there. <laughs> All right, exactly. Oh, thank you All right, so you much. have a good one, and we'll talk with you later. Have fun at the conference. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Jamie Feverletti. The book is called Blood Run. It's out on November the 14th, of course, however you want to buy books. You can get it in whatever format you want. So if you're listening to the show now, just kind of put a little reminder down for November 14th to pick it up. But you can always pre-order it. If you go to Amazon, uh, you can get it right now and it will get into your box. Or if you're listening to the show after November 14th, you can go buy the book. So, again, make sure you visit jamiefeverlutty.com for more information on all her stuff. We're going to take a quick break, and then we are going to be back with our next guest. And we are going to be speaking um, about Sisters in Crime. It is 30 years uh, for this wonderful organization, and we're able to speak now with um, the current president of the uh, of the organization, Diane Valerie. Hopefully, I said that name right, but I don't know if I did, so we're going to find out. And in the meantime, got something all new for you. Here you go.
here after the break. Uh, again, I want to uh, thank Jamie for coming on. It's always great to be able to speak with her and uh, talk with her about her books. But now we're going to transition over into a, a topic that is very uh, important, I think, for all authors and fans, is to be able to talk about um, these groups and these organizations that have spent a lot of time and, and effort to raise awareness and help authors become the best that they can and, and, and give them a sense of you know community that they know that authors are not just sitting behind their computer and typing, that there is other people out there they can get to. And Sisters in Crime has been around now for 30 years. And I knew I said her name wrong. It's Diane Valere. And I want to thank her so much for coming on. She's the current president of Sisters in Crime. So, Diane, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Yeah, it was great this that Dana. Uh, it was great that Dana kind of uh, entered, you know, got me under the 30 years because I didn't know how long it was. I thought Sisters in Crime, you know, was a little longer than that. And it was great to see, you know, that this is the 30 year mark and that Sarah Petrovsky was the first. Um, she was the first president. Now, of course, people know her from V.I. Rakowski. So, I mean, this is an organization that has gone through and helped countless of authors and help them on their way. Like I said, it's, it's a great community. So talk a little bit about maybe Sisters in Crime and, and how it kind of started and what the goal is and, and how can authors maybe, you know, get involved in this because they really need to have this sense of community, like I said, so they're just not feeling like they sit behind the computer by themselves all day long. Ab- Absolutely. Um, Sisters in Crime started back in, it was formally started in 1987. Uh, so a group of women really started noticing that they were get not, they were kind of getting the cold shoulder from libraries and bookstores back in 86, and they were starting to talk about it. So in 87 at Bausher Khan, that's when they formed. And just to back up a second, the organization is a, it's an international nonprofit that advocates for the advancement and development of women crime writers. It's not specific to women. I think about 90% of our members are women, but it's open to anybody who wants to join. Um, But really, that was what it was born out of, was this awareness that women crime writers at that time weren't getting the same treatment and opportunities as male crime writers. And some women, as they talked about it, they kind of, they received some advice, like you can complain about it, but really that's not the way to go. You should try to change it or you should just accept it. And these were not women who wanted to accept it. So they formed so that they could try to do something about it. And since that time, I, I think one of the number one things that has come out of Sisters in Crime is this sense of community um, where people can go to ask questions, to get advice, to get mentoring. And that. I, mean, I know when I started writing, I didn't have a group. So when I found Sisters in Crime, it was this, it was kind of amazing to find out that there was this group of people who talked about this all the time. I could ask any question. No question was too dumb. There were people who had wild success, people who I'd never heard of who were successful. I discovered just this, this like I said, this wonderful community. And I think that is just the fact that that exists is so vital for the writing community, the crime writing community in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, no. I mean, I was just going to follow. I was just going to echo that because it is, you know, very important. I mean, there's, there's international, there's ITW and there's mystery writers of America and there's, and there's other things out there, but the one thing that, and I've talked about with Karen Slaughter and I've talked about with Lisa Gardner and different, uh, you know, female authors is for some reason, you know, it's very difficult for 
female authors, I guess, to be taken serious in writing crime, and, and, and we don't really understand kind of why. We used to see a lot of those authors having to write, I guess, romance first to kind of get into the door, and then they're starting to finally write into thrillers, and then they become very popular, you know, like Sandra Brown and, and people like that. I mean, you have some authors like a Patricia Cornwell who was able to maybe not go the route and able to jump in and write thrillers and, and, and start getting a foothold. But for a lot of women, they had to go the romance route and kind of get in that way. And I think that the organization is is wonderful in being able to, like I said, give the authors the sense of community knowing that, hey, you're in this together and you can all work together. Absolutely. I think one of our one of our former presidents has mentioned that it almost seemed like men are able to break into thriller and, and darker crime easier, but women are now, you mentioned breaking in through romance and then transitioning, and a lot of women writers are also breaking in through cozy, which is also kind of hard then to break out of cozy. It's a little difficult to break out of that into the bigger stories. Uh, some, pe- some people are, have been successful with it, but it's, I think the early people who were doing it were having more trouble with that. But I think that is one of the nice things about Sisters in Crime is that there is no kind of perceived rank of you're better if you write one subgenre of mystery than another. We are all just viewed at equally as writers, so writers of crime fiction. And there are opportunities to do research. There are experts to ask questions of because the goal is for all of us to present the best work that we can. So there is never, there's never been a sense of looking down upon different subgenres and, and saying that one is better than another, which I think helps really build that sense of community throughout the almost 4,000 members now. Now, how did you get involved and, and how did you kind of work your way up to the ranks? And, and now, you know, you're, uh, you're the president. Well, I, I'm actually the immediate past president. I've been, I, I relinquished the position to the incoming president less than a month ago. Um, so I'm in the immediate past president role. I was president during the 30th anniversary because the anniversary runs from Khan to Khan. And I, I joined Sisters, I think, in 95, right around 95, 96. Actually, no, I think that's a little early. I joined Sisters closer to 2000. I was writing. I didn't – I was just on my own. I, was, I had always wanted to write. I finally had an idea. I started writing it, but I didn't really know – like I said, I didn't know there were people who talked about this who, who existed in this world. So I did a little bit of Googling, and I found the organization, and that kind of I, – I joined Sisters. Then I joined the Guppies, which is a, an online chapter, which is a great place for anyone who's just getting started because that is really the, the beginning, you know, any question. No question goes unanswered. And that year, they were starting to talk about doing an anthology. And they encouraged me to submit to it, which I did. It, and I got into the anthology, and that became my first publication credit. So really, Sisters not only became a community for me and just a group of friends, but it also provided that first opportunity where I went from being an unpublished author to a published author because of Sisters in Crime. And that one little credit, that from that moment, that's where I connected with editors. That's where I continued to develop my voice. That's where I, I started to have... Uh, I, don't, I think the confidence and some of the credits to then go on to query agents and, and continue on my career. So because of that, I always looked at the organization as playing such a pivotal role in my journey. I was involved in the Guppies board after a little bit of time. And then um, I was involved in my local chapter in Los Angeles. I was president, uh, 
president of Los Angeles chapter for a few years. And then when they asked me to be president of national, I could not say no to the opportunity because it just really was. So it's been such an, it's been the most sure. important organization for me. And you have, and you have a what, uh, five or six series, I guess, you know, uh, and, and kind of the cozy um, and more and more in the cozy mystery realm. What do you have, like five or six different series that you've written? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a little more. It's, I have four currently, and that's the fifth four, one I'm okay. starting in December. Yes, yeah, so you, I have one. But you had one, but, but then you have one that, that you're not writing with anymore that could have made five. <laughs> well, it'll be five in December because I have my own ah, okay. cozy story. I was just getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes but, you were yeah. projecting my future. That's okay. <laughs> Hey, I'm trying. I try to project. If I could, if I could project people's future, I wouldn't be on this radio. I'll tell you that. I would definitely be. I would be doing something with Dion Warwick, I guess. But, um, yeah. So I mean, so so you got involved because you know you were writing cozies and you were writing kind of mysteries and 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 more along those lines. And and yes, cozies. I have to. You know, cozies are definitely something that I guess you get more women readers. I love cozies because I love Murder She Wrote. I love those mo- those shows. I search yes. those shows out because I don't like shows that have underlining plots and I don't care about their, you know, uh, I guess you want to say their, their backstories. I just like the case. I like to be able to know when I go to Murder, She Wrote, I can go to season five, episode 12, and I don't need to know anything that happened before. I just, I just care about this hour. And it's like, that's a book to yes. me is that one little hour. Yes. And so when you started writing and you getting into this series and you started writing how were you able to – how was Sisters in Crime, you know, supportive with you so when other authors kind of understand, like, well, what do they do for you? You know, yeah, I'm an author, but what exactly do they do, and how is it going to help me? How did it when, – when you were writing your series, how did they help you? What, what do you tell authors? Like, why is it important to join when you're an author, when you're doing it anyway, because what can they do? Well – for me, I started writing a book because I had an idea to write a book. I had no I had never heard the word cozy. I didn't even know that there were subgenres of mysteries. All I knew was I wanted to write a mystery. I had grown up reading Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden and the, the old children's mysteries, and so that was what I loved. So I had this idea. It was kind of like a grown-up Nancy Drew was in the adult world. Didn't know about cozy. So I learned about that, about the term, about the subgenre, about what to, how to classify my work. I learned about how to write a blurb, a 100-word synopsis kind of back cover copy concept that goes in a query letter. I learned about query letters. I joined uh, Sisters in Crime had groups developed to finding an agent. So I joined those. And we all shared our experiences and shared names and response times so we could see who was buying, who was representing what. We, as we met each other, we started having people's names who we could then use in query letters. So that was building a network. Um, personally, my first book, I had decided to self-publish my first book. And I asked some of my, my sisters in crime friends for back cover copy blurbs. And one of them unbeknownst to me, passed the manuscript on to her editor at Penguin Random House and asked and said, this, is, this book is about to be self-published. You've never seen it. You need to see it because you're not going to have the opportunity. So from that conversation, they came back to me and asked if I'd be interested in pitching any other ideas to them, which I did. And two of my series ended up at Penguin Random House, two series I hadn't even known I was going to write. So that provided me a foot in the door. Um, uh, speaking engagements, uh, 
have gotten through Sisters in Crime because they maintain a speakers bureau. So I think visibility is wonderful. Sisters in Crime now offers um, a page on Authors for Libraries. Every author member is entitled to a free page on Authors for Libraries, which is a searchable database by the Friends of the Libraries. Um, So again, that's something that librarians can then connect with Sisters in Crime members when they're looking for panels, things like that. So it all kind of helps now in getting getting the word out. Plus, there continue to be educational opportunities like Sync into Great Writing, which is a workshop that takes place the day before BasherCon each year. And there are speakers that come around the country to help educate not just new people like I was, but also what, how do we continue to educate the people who have had a little bit of success and, but still want to keep growing? So we have speakers who travel around the country and address those things and, and do a lot of workshops for members as well. And I think that that's one of the biggest um, aspects of the Sisters in Crime also, you know, is is definitely that area of, like you said, finding the agents and, find, and, and being able to talk with the people that have been there and hearing their journeys and knowing, um, you know, that, that's, that there's different ways to do things. And sometimes you get the more information, you kind of understand all of that, how there's, you know, there's different ways – of of seeing how other people have have done their marketing and have done you know their their writing because at the end of the day the only thing the author can control is writing the best book that you can trying to get someone to buy it that's that's a totally different kind of animal Absolutely. that you try to tackle I mean that's that's something totally. I always tell people the easiest part is writing the book the hard part is getting people to buy it I mean let's face it well it's absolutely you know. and I think it's so it's so wonderful to have fresh eyes. Um, I, after I finished my book, I, uh, Sisters in Crime also organized manuscript swaps. So this is kind of not hiring an independent editor, but just, you know, I'll read your book. You read my book, give me feedback, tell me what works, what doesn't. And I must've done probably 30 manuscript swaps over the years, just because it's great to have somebody else read your book and tell you what doesn't make sense or tell you if it lags or tell you where they like it. So you can start to hone your sense of pacing. So again, that's another thing that the organization did for me and, and all my books were better because of that, because I got to get that feedback. So when an agent says, I'm not connecting with the character, you can read that sentence a hundred times and try to figure out what they mean. But when you have somebody else read it and say, your character annoyed me here or your character should have been a little more brave here or different little things. You start to say, Oh, okay. I, now I get it. Now I understand why people, maybe that agent didn't connect and it helps bring all of that into focus. And you said that about 90% of the members are women. That means, you know, 10% are men or some kind of an alien. So how then, you know, can a man, I guess you want to say in the organization, because they might say, Oh, sisters in crime, that's not for me because, you know, you have the word sisters. How, you know, I'm sure you would probably like to have as many members as you possibly can. So when, you know, when, you're, when, when a man's looking at it, I guess he wants to say that he wants to kind of be involved. It's the same thing. I mean, it's not, it's not gender Absolutely. specific, <laughs> Absolutely. I guess you want to say. I think, exactly. The, one of the core things that the organization has done in the 30 years is the monitoring project, which is where the, a team of volunteers are counting reviews in publications, reviews of books by men and reviews of books by women, to hold the publications accountable for equality in reviews to make sure that there isn't a, a, just a really, really unbalanced scale either direction. So that, and we report that every year. We report those findings each year. That 
doesn't help anybody to do anything. It's really just kind of a snapshot of what's happening in the industry. But absolutely, everything that I mentioned, the community, the advice, the mentoring, the support of the book-loving community, the uh, educational opportunities, every one of those things is available to any member, man or woman. We, we absolutely don't discriminate based on sex. And in fact, I think our, the president of our online chapter, the outgoing president of our online guppies chapter was a man. So, you know, even, right. even roles in the board are open. And so what are the criteria for someone who wants to join? Do they have to be published? Can they be unpublished? Absolutely can be unpublished. Anyone, our members are comprised of writers, readers, reviewers, librarians, editors, agents, uh, bloggers, anyone who has an interest in the crime writing community. So it, it, we know we have members who are devout fans and never wanted to and never planned to write a book. So really, it's, it, anyone, it's open to anyone, um, unpublished or published, and it's just a matter of signing up and sending in your check. <laughs> and now there's a national organi- no, there's a national but then you have local chapters and how many cities now? We have 52 local chapters. I think at last So there's, you're going to find one near you unless you live in the backwoods of Montana it might not be close to you but there's one pretty much around where you where everybody is. Exactly. Exactly. There are there are chapters in major cities that we are I think we generally approve about Five new chap- four or five new chapters a year. So as we hear um, cities organize and, and apply to get a charter, we look at the we look at them. We look at what kind of uh, area they have, how many members they think they can pull, and if they can sustain themselves for you know long term, not just one meeting. And sure. so that's that's another great way. I think chapters provide you know they do anthologies, so they provide that opportunity for publication credit. They also organize a lot of in-person events, which is great. Here in Los Angeles, the chapter heads up a booth at the L.A. Times Festival of Books, which is just fantastic for visibility, for right. being able to get in front of readers. So I, that's another one of the big things that, that chapters can do for members. And when, when you decide – so if someone is sitting there right now and they're like, oh, how can I find out if there's a chapter you know, close to me in, in, you know, in Peoria, Illinois um, – where would they go? How would they kind of go about finding these things out? We, our website is at sistersincrime.org, and there are, there are pages for chapters. There's a chapter map. There's a search field, so someone can just type in chapters, and it'll pull up a list of all the chapters. And from there, you can click through to any of the individual chapter websites. So that's really a great place to find out where that local presence is. And each chapter has different they have meetings on different schedules so you can find out what's going on on the agenda if they have meetings coming up you can usually attend a meeting and just you know try them on for size see if it feels like a group that you'd like to participate in that's exactly what I did I showed up at the meeting in Los Angeles I had no idea and and I got there and I thought wow this looks like this this feels good so I want to be I want to keep coming so that became how I got involved with the local groups and local groups kind of they kind of do their own thing as long as it's under the the guidelines and the rules of you know the organization uh, you know that you guys have set up. Right. The local right. chapters yeah. have their own boards. They have their own planning and their own agenda. But they obviously they operate under the umbrella organization, so it's still focused on our national mission. 
So, if somebody's going, so if somebody's going to a meeting for the first time, and let's say, like you said, like you went to Los Angeles, like what do you bring? Like what should you expect once you go to that meeting? The, you know, the first time is it an hour? Is it two hours? Does it vary? You, what what kind of happens? I'm sure that there's probably something that had happened the week before, or the month before, depending on how often they decide to meet, that is now maybe coming forward. But what should someone expect the first time they go to a meeting? Well, I can I can talk specifically about LA. Um, the okay. meetings are about two hours long, so the first half hour is just mingling, mingling and chatting with people, mix and mingle. Uh, that starts at two, so at about two thirty, the president makes some opening remarks, asks anybody who's new to you know raise your hand, gives anybody a chance to talk about any good news that happened to them in the past month, if they've gotten a contract or signed with an agent or won a contest or anything, anything you want to cheer about. And so there's okay. really, it starts off on a very positive note. From there, we do an author reading. So one of our author members gets a chance to read from their, a recent publication. And from there, we have an expert speaker who speaks for probably about half an hour to 45 minutes about a topic that relates to crime fiction. And we've had everything from, um, we've had police, we've had crime scene cleanup, we've had editors and publicists and uh, canine unit and uh, gun specialists, FBI. We, so any kind of anything that could fall under the umbrella of writing crime fiction. So you can always see the agenda on the website, but I think what's great is that the person who coordinates the meetings is saying, well, we had police last time, so let's not have police this time. Let's do editor. And then the next time, let's have marketing. And the next time, hmm. let's have a plot workshop, things like that. So it really does kind of provide something for every for writers at every different level. And it doesn't make a difference kind of what genre you write in. You you can write in science fiction. You can write in paranormal. You can write true crime. You know, you can write straight thriller. You can write mysteries. You can write cozies. There's uh, The generalization of the writing part is is what's the important, not the genre that you're writing in for these meetings and exactly. for the organization. Exactly. What I like to think of and what I – you mentioned the murder she wrote when we were talking about cozies. And that, mm -hmm. to me, the mystery is about the puzzle. And that's what I yeah. love. I love the, the the clues, the planted things that by the end it all resolves. You can see how this all fits together. And when you think about it in very large terms, almost every mystery has that puzzle in it, regardless of whether it's humorous or whether it's a noir or whether it's uh, suspense, whatever it might be, there is that puzzle at the, at the center of it. So I think that becomes kind of the, the overlying structure. And then from there, so any of these things fits in suspense, thriller, mystery, horror. You know, you have these kinds of things, paranormal. It, depending on what direction you take it, there's something to learn. Yeah, and, and I think that that's the – the whole purpose, again, of of the organization is it, it doesn't matter the difference on your genre. It makes difference about the writing, and the writing is, is what's the important part. And there's always going to be something for somebody that goes in. And, and so, how much is it per year? For is it is it a yearly membership that that you that you pay every year? It is. It's a fifty dollar membership per year. It uh, there is a lifetime membership at five hundred dollars, uh, which you know depending on where you're at in your career, that might be a value. Um, sure. And renewals, generally, the renewal push starts in December and, and goes, you know, we go on a calendar year. You can join at any particular time of the year, but we always start to send out renewal notices toward the end of the year for people to sure. renew in the beginning of the following year. 
and or and, and magazines like ours, like Suspense Magazine, and like this show, how can we do more with the authors to maybe alert them, like, hey, you know what, there's marketing things out there, or there's magazines for you to kind of get involved in, and you can write for or have someone review their books and this. So how can an organization like myself be more involved in Sisters in Crime? Well, first off, what you're doing today is absolutely wonderful, and I, I want to thank you for doing this because your show is absolutely. really pr- shining a great spotlight on the organization just by us talking about it. I think, and I think that's really the key. That's where so much of Sister of Mission has succeeded is by talking about things. So I think this exactly continuing the conversation, and um, us, you know, I going me going back to the membership and mentioning mm-hmm. for people to reach out to you about or check out your website and look at opportunities sure. and mention that they're sisters and crime authors. We tell everybody who's a member when you're doing anything professionally, mention that you're a member of Sisters in Crime because it shows someone else that you're taking your career seriously and you're joining a professional organization to right. help make yourself more connected. So, again, we I think that's kind of the key is, like I said, us telling our membership about opportunities and you providing opportunities, and that really is – then it just becomes up to the people who take advantage of it. Well, I'll tell you – Go back and tell whoever's going to be the president to give us more updates because we love to see updates about what's going on. We don't get a lot of those things. I mean, sometimes we just get them here and there, but we would love to be able to have updates and, you know, we could reach out to, you know, all the chapters, uh, all 52, and and kind of get them to let them know, you know, what we have for them and and things like that. So that would be great if you wanted to do that. And, you know, because like I said, we would love to share updates and we would love to be able to post those things and have people know that there's a, another outlet for them to go to too but um so real quick before because we're going to you know wrap up here is sisters and sisters is the website and that's where they would find all the information that they need to find out about everything right and that's where all your that's where they can find all of your facebook and twitter and and social medias and YouTube and everything, absolutely. If There's tons of links all over the place, so they can find anything they want. But if they don't see the exact link, they can just type it into the search field in the upper right-hand corner, and it will take them where they want to go. And then they can go and search for your books on Amazon, and, and they can find out uh, more about your writing too, which is really good. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Diane, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I wish you guys nothing but the best. Here's to 30 more, here's to 50 more, here's to 100 more years of the organization. Uh, of Absolutely. What, and, and can't wait to see what happens. It's, it's great to see these things evolve and, and, how, it, and how, how it started 30 years ago and now where it is now. Imagine where it could be in the next 30 years. So that's exciting to see. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think the publishing world has shown us how much change can take place in a short period of time. So Sisters in Crime has been on that edge looking at how they can exactly. support authors for 30 years. Right. Thank you very much, John. Well, this is so wonderful. Thank you so much, Diane. You have a great one. We'll talk with you soon. Okay, sounds good. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is uh, um, Diane, uh, Diane Valer, and she is the past president now of Sisters in Crime. So make sure you visit sistersincrime.org to find out all their information if you want to join just to see what they got going on, how they can you know, help. Like, you said, you know, like she said, fans, authors, you don't have to be a published author. But go search them out. Go see if they're in your area to attend a meeting, if there's something that you want to do, if you want to be an author, if you are an author. You, you can't have more information, put it that way. You, you, you can't. So uh, make sure you visit them and, and see what they have to offer for, for you and, and, and 
see if it can help, you know, better progress what you're doing. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with our last guest here, um, Patricia Goosen, talking about her latest book, Come Home. Uh, we've known Pat for, for quite some time, so it's great to be able to finally have her on the show to, to talk about her writing. Um, we always, you know, every time we meet, we always talk about the publishing of Ocean View when we go to Thriller Fest and things like that. So it's great to kind of get a little personal into what she has. So here in the meantime, here you go. for coming on and then Diane Valer for speaking to us and now we're going to transition into our last guest of the day and um, of course I screwed up the last name it's Patricia Gussin so it's G-U-S-S-I-N so make sure you know even though I say it wrong I got to spell it right because uh, PatriciaGussin.com is her website and we're so happy again to be able to speak with her for the first time on the radio so Patricia thanks so much for coming on how you doing I'm doing fine and thank you for having me John Hey, so Come Home is your latest book, and you got to tell everybody a little bit about what you got going on in this one. Yeah, it is my it's my seventh novel, and um, of course my novels are all in the thriller, mystery thriller, yeah. mostly thriller genre. But um, this one but is this a little different. But this one's outside your series too. But this one's outside your normal series, yes, right? Yes, yes, it is outside my series. I of of my seven books, four are in what I uh, what we call the Laura Nelson series, and that mm-hmm. series takes Laura Nelson, who's who through medical school, uh, in the late '60s, all the way up through um, to the to the point where um, we, we we skip the we skip seven years between each of the four books, and she's. Uh, She's in pretty much near her retirement in her in her pharmaceutical job. But anyway, with this one, what I'm doing is starting a new series. I'm going to call it the Identicals, and it, it the, I'm actually using Laura's Laura Nelson's twin daughters. So, if anyone has read. 
the Laura Nelson series, they'll recognize these two protagonists from my earlier books, but they would have been children or teenagers, mm. um, medical students, as they, as they cool. came through the Laura Nelson series. But now they're on their own as protagonists. And, um, and this one, I've used Nicole Nelson, who is one of the twin daughters. They're identical twins. And um, set it up such that Nicole is a, is a plastic surgeon, she is married to to Ahmed Masood, who is yeah. also a plastic surgeon. He is Egyptian. He he is a Muslim, and she is American. They have a five-year-old child. He's been in the United States for 18 years, so he's very westernized. But in the year 2011, um, he's feeling some pressures on Arab men in the United States post 9-11, and also his family is putting a lot of pressure on him to come back to Egypt because we're right at the brink of e- of the Arab Spring in Egypt. And they have a five-year-old child. The family wants Ahmed back in Egypt with his son. They really don't want Nicole, and that's the setup. And when you start bringing it, because I'm I'm pretty familiar with the Muslim community, and this is one of those this this is definitely one of those topics that when you're when you're kind of writing it as an author i think it's kind of difficult to maybe have the reader really understand the culture of what it's like in the middle east um even though egyptian is a little different than i guess you want to say the the gulf regions of saudi arabia and kuwait and and those countries but when you're researching and you start doing everything you always find out something new about, like, the Muslim community and that kind of thing that that you don't hear in the mainstream media, which tends to be 90% evil on the side and 10% okay. What did you kind of find out when you kind of were doing this and, and realizing that you were going to set Nicole and Ahmed off on their own but put a very much of a very charged, uh, I guess you want to say, subplot kind of within within the book? Yes, well, you know, I was I was traveling in Egypt for the three weeks just prior to the uh, to the um, Arab, Arab Spring, the eruption in Tahrir Square in in Cairo, mm. and um, and so traveling through Egypt and Egypt is just was, I thought it was a wonderful company, a country. There was so much interaction between the Westerners and the and the and the middle mid easterners and it just didn't seem like it was a country that was going to blow up in the very right. next week and um so I got to talk to a lot of people over there, and as you say they, they were just wonderful people and it was surprising when all this happened, so I had to do a lot of research as to how did this come about how you know how did this rupture occur and it was so interesting because um in, in some people call this the the Facebook revolution. All of this was happening among the younger people in Egypt, all sort of underground in the Facebook community, and that's how those big demonstrations that you know got ugly pretty fast came about. And but most of the people over there really were not really tuned into that. So it was very interesting research and. On the other hand, you know, coming from medicine, you train with a lot of of physicians that come from all over the world, and I've had a lot of interactions with with physicians from the Muslim communities throughout my throughout my career, 
And so, you know, I really tried to get into the heads of um, what was happening, what was happening with them in America. Things did change after 9-11 in terms of just a, more of a, of a, of a sense of, um, of prejudice toward them. Mm-hmm. And then in my book here, my Nicole and her husband, they're partners in a very thriving plastic surgery um, practice. And, not, and Ahmed has had a couple of lawsuits, and that really has him upset too. You know, the, the Arab man does not want to be challenged, and, and particularly when his wife is not. And, and so that, and of course in plastic surgery you get sued all the time, so that's not unusual yeah. at all. But that goes well, I've seen, I've seen what things. happens to some, of those, to some of those actresses, and I'm like, if you didn't see your plastic surgeon lady, because now you look like the Joker, I don't know what you did wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So it's like it's so so that was happening, and then his family they are they are recipients of the largesse of the of the Hosni Mubarak regime. They're very wealthy. They pretty much dominate the cotton um, business in in Egypt. And they want Ahmed home. They want to move. They're getting scared now because of what's happening politically in Egypt. They want to move their money out uh, out of Egypt, and they want to move it. Um, they've chosen South America is where they want to sort of reestablish themselves. So they want Ahmed home, and um, you know he has to make the decision. He's pretty westernized. He's happy in the U.S. Right. Know, basically. He's adapted extremely well, and and he's got a really good life. And they have a, an adorable five-year-old child. And um, he, it's very, very tough on him to make that decision, but he does. And once once he makes that decision, he just sets off a a, a, whole, a course of um, really, you know, careening toward tragedy. And you know, I mean, because this is a very emotionally charged. Um, you know, book. I mean, you have a lot of emotion that that you know that goes into these characters and pulling from uh, their heartstrings back and forth and back and forth. What was the challenge you writing something like that? Because that's you know that 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 can be kind of taxing on your brain as an author every day when you're sitting down and writing those kinds of things. Well, I I think I mean I I just think that of course the abduction of a child it just has to be the worst possible possible thing that could ever happen that's to a parent. it is and i did write a book called um and then there was one and it was and it was an abduction book of two of three um um nine-year-old uh, identical triplet girls but anyway that but so i i have written about abductions but this is different it's parental it's all in the family and it sets up not only the two cultures with the child in the middle between the parents but they each have extended families and so it almost becomes a war against the Cairo family and the and the and the American the the Philadelphia family and trying to get this child back and the other thing that i learned which i really knew nothing about was about i i really, and i had to research the the whole issue of international abductions and they're usually by the parent they're usually by the non custodial parent to various countries and um the middle the middle east has become quite a um quite there've been quite a few in the middle east and there is virtually nothing the the like say the american parent can do to get to legally get that child out um the um there's the Hague convention was signed by 
I think it was 74 countries in 1983, and that helps if, if, if a country is a signature to the Hague Convention, at least there's some kind of a, a platform, a, a, a platform to, to try to um, go into that country and get the child. However, Egypt is not a signatory to that, and um, neither are um, – well, this, is, this was, I thought was very interesting. In Egypt, of course, is an African country. I believe there are 54 countries in Africa, which was a surprise to me. I didn't know that. And um, there's yeah, only one. Yeah, there's some small ones in there, I guess. Yeah. yeah, there are tons of them. And there's only one country in Egypt who has signed the, the Hague Convention, and that's South Africa. So, of course, to go back in, into um, Egypt to get your child, you just can't do it. So it has to be through some type of a, you know, an sort of a illegal extraction situation. Yeah, I mean, uh, Egypt is a place that I want to go to, and my wife and I have talked about doing that. Maybe, you know, we're going to go to Thailand in February, but then our next trip we are looking at going to Egypt um, just because of all the rich history and the rich culture that they have. But, again, the one thing that you really don't immerse yourself, and it's kind of difficult when you're not a Muslim, is to kind of immerse yourself into, you know, their culture, I guess, in a way of you know understanding the religion um, and, and and why it's so important and and why it's so you know why family is so much and then you mention that kind of in the book when you say you know he has to worry about does does he you know does he kind of obey his father and that's a and that's a weird thing to think about as a grown man to have to obey your father at this point when you are a father of your own five-year-old and this and that and I, and and that's and that's a really big struggle that you know you put Ahmed through but then Nicole on the other hand is kind of in I guess you want to say kind of in limbo because she really doesn't have any any control over what decision Ahmed decides to make and she just kind of has to to go with it uh, in that kind of realm and and would you kind of agree that that's kind of the way that those characters kind of have to kind of have to interact themselves. Yes, I mean he I mean Ahmed is terribly torn um between what his family wants and unbeknownst to Ahmed, unbeknownst to the whole Masoud family over there in Egypt is that deeply hidden uh in their family is a is a core of evil that nobody even suspects. So he walks right into a just a horrible situation, and his family invited him into a situation that they didn't even know about. So it is terrible, and Nicole had no, she had no control. Obviously, he took the child, uh, he took off on a private plane with, with the child, and while she was uh, in, a, in a long, really complicated uh, surgical process. So she didn't find out that her child was missing until she came out of surgery. Now, fans of the series, uh, of your Lauren Nelson series, when they read the book four after the fall, did was there any kind of setup? Because I didn't. I, I'm, I apologize. I did not read that. So, was there a setup um, leading into Come Home? We, where your fans kind of have an idea that maybe this, that a book was coming with with Nicole and Ahmed, or. Or is it just is it something totally different that you know Laura Nelson fans are going to love it because you wrote it, but it is something that is much different. Do would, would they notice that kind of difference? Well, I don't think they. I don't think that they. I mean, they, no, there was no setup in After okay. the Flaw, which was the fourth and last of the Nor- Laura uh, Nelson series. 
both the girls, Natalie and Nicole, are medical students. And, um, and, and Laura has three sons also. Uh, one's a lawyer, one's an architect, and one's a sports personality. But um, in After the Fall, no. The, the girls are medical students. They're doing very nicely, and they're not really the highlights of that book. They're the supporting character of her children. But um, so, so now years have passed. Now we're into 2011, and, and they, you know, they are both, they're both doctors. Now, the subplot in Come Home has to do with Natalie's twin sister. I mean, Nicole's twin sister, Natalie. They're identical. And, but, but Natalie has gone, they're both doctors. Natalie has gone, followed her mother into the pharmaceutical industry. And she is the, the vice president of a very large pharmaceutical firm. And there is a second storyline here and where there is a big problem with the, the blockbuster drug in her company. And it is concurrent with Nicole's son being abducted. So she is very, very torn between what is she going to do? She's, she's got her job and she's under a huge crisis and she's got her sister who with I, nothing can be worse than a missing child. So, you know, how is she going to handle that? And she finds a way to do it in a in a really unique way. And will fans notice a different, you know, Patricia Gusson? Were they going to know a different kind of author? Did, or is this just kind of – did you challenge yourself in a different way? I always kind of, you know, like to know if authors like, hey, I, you know, I did a little different scene setting or I wrote dialogue a different way or, or I kind of wrote things a little different. Or – are they going to notice kind of the same Patricia Gusson going forward, or, or did you kind of change a little bit with with Come Home? Well, it's changed a little bit. I think they'll I think they'll certainly recognize my writing style. So nothing terribly drastic. But you know, as you said, you just have to push yourself with every book. So with this book, I did two things. One, I sort of had the again, it's going to be called the identical series. I had both of the twins. One of them have a having the alpha role, and the other the secondary role. So sort of an intertwining of the of the two twins of things coming together and going apart also moving in to the inter, international waters the international themes here because this book goes from Philadelphia to Cairo now there's a lot going on with Ahmed's family and trying to move things to South America so there's Uruguay and then on the way to Uruguay, there's Monrovia, Liberia, as a, as a site. So there's a lot more of an international theme and, again, again sort of a, an, an alpha plot and a beta plot. Oh, very cool. And is this going to be something ongoing? You're going to keep, are you going to write more in this series? Yes, I'd like to. I'd like to. Uh, next, the next, the next book I want to write uh, it will will probably um, feature Natalie in the alpha role, and um, you know they'll always and they'll be a part for Nicole. I don't know what it will be yet, but uh, yes, I'm I'm going to continue that. I'm I'm really interested in that because it allows me to cover so much territory. It allows me to stay a little bit in medicine, and then you know keep that family theme very alive and well. And now what about fans of Laura Nelson? What are you doing with her? Well, that's really funny. I've had an awful lot of fan response to Laura Nelson when I said that this was, you know, I was going to um, 
I was I was going to end the series with book four. And the reason that I did that was because of the way I set it up. Her life progresses seven years between each of the four books, and she's getting, you know, a bit older. So um, I I wanted so so I I I will say that just because of so many people asked me to do this, I I do have an appearance by Laura Nelson in this book in a what I hope is a very subtle way, not a you know not a dominant role, but a at least a, a cameo role. Hmm. Okay. So they're gonna at least have a taste of Laura going forward, even if she doesn't have her full-length book. Yes, yes. Okay, that's good. Now, when, when you're saying that, now you're saying that and you're deciding because you have written uh, some standalone books too. So do you have some ideas that are in your head that are not going to fit, I guess you want to say, in the Nicole Nelson, Ahmad Masood series that you know fans might see uh, another standalone coming out of you uh, in the future? Well, I would say... Most likely, yes, but I don't have an exact um, an, 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 an exact um, setup yet in my, I don't, in my okay. mind. I, I really am trying to focus on this next book with, um, with Natalie as a protagonist. I want mm-hmm. to make her the head of the, um, the FDA because I think that will allow for just a whole lot of really interesting um, Interesting information because with my books, I you know I like to be able to inform a little bit, and then I really like to be able to get my readers really into the emotional piece of it, and then um, and then and then you know have it like a, a nonstop thing also. So. Yeah, and, and when you're writing the medical parts, because I, I always kind of ask you know people who are in the professional realm and they're having to write kind of with their profession. So when you're having to write some of the medical things. Uh, is it difficult to dumb it down for people like me who maybe know what a Band-Aid is and that's the level of my <laughs> medical extent? <laughs> I, I don't think it's, it's, um, it's really not that difficult if you think about it, but you really have to pay attention to that and, and um, not let yourself get carried away in, into the, the, the details. So, no, I try, I try very hard to make it as absolutely simple as possible. And a lot of my plots aren't necessarily medical, but my but my characters are. So you know, you get a glimpse into medicine, but not necessarily such a heavy dose. Yeah. Okay. Because I that, that's always the I think the the hard balance because you know how things are and and you kind of know how it should be, but again, for the average kind of guy like me, it's like I don't I don't know what that means. I have no I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad yeah. that you spell it out for me. No, but I try to do that. And and for me, I mean, it's really easy to write the medical things because that's, you know, what I know. Right. Um, so I, the marketing part, uh, you know, we I always kind of like to talk about the marketing part a little bit with authors and how you're able to navigate through these waters because – like I was just telling Diane, you know, writing the book is the easy part. Getting the people buy it is the hard part. So how have you kind of been able to kind of navigate your way around? You know, is there any kind of tips and things that you learned early on? Because you are a big part of the ITW. You go to Thriller Fest every year, and, and we see you in these conferences. And so are you able to – what are you able to take from those conferences that you use um, yourself uh, as a way to kind of get your name out there further? Oh, I think those conferences are so invaluable. 
they are, you know, they're sort of like the pillar stone, I, I think, of, of being being a, a mystery thriller author. So, and I think I've only missed one since the beginning because I we took our family to South Africa. But anyway, uh, and also I, I was listening to the the Sisters in Crime um, the, uh, information that, that Diane was putting out there, and I am an avid member of Sisters of Crime, too. I think it's an incredible organization. It puts out so much valuable information about the about the state of the book market, in, particularly in, in, in the marketing field. So I really commend that organization. But, yeah, those organizations are very important. Social media is very important. Um, you know, just getting yourself out there to whatever groups are possible. And, just, you know, you just have to work it. You have to work very, very hard. You, you always spend, you know, two hours a day just doing that. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of authors get frustrated because you're like, I would much rather be spending those two hours writing the next book or, you know, finishing this scene or whatnot. But they're like, got to kind of go out, got to kind of do the Facebook posting, got to kind of do the Twitter, got to kind of do some other things. It really is a discipline. It really is. I mean, I sort of try to write out for my week what I have to do, what I have to post, what I have to do. And so I can go like, okay, Monday I'm going to do this and that. So it, it, it really is. I mean, it's a, it's a discipline. It's not fun, I don't think. I, and it, it's hard work. But it has to be done. Yeah. So, Patricia, where's the best place for people to find out everything that they need to know? Is it just going to your website? Yeah, they can go to my website, yeah, patriciagussin.com. I think it pretty much says everything there. All of my books are available on, um, you know, in pretty much all the places that where books are sold and on all the e-readers and so on and so forth. And so um, I think that's a good, that's a good place to start. Um, also, I, there's a lot of information on, uh, on Ocean View Publishing's uh, website about my books, about other books. So that's right. oceanviewpub.com. Those I think are the best the best places, and of course Facebook. I just love Facebook. Right, and and come home actually comes out this Tuesday, November the seventh. So if people are listening yes. now, you can pre-order the book, uh, and you can get it. And I think what is the pre-order right now on Kindle? What is it? Ninety nine cents. Yes, I mean a ninety nine cent pre-order. Yeah, here's the thing. Um, right now, I'm for the first week, starting on the well the seventh. I, it may be out there now, but really starting on the seventh, the Come Home will be ninety nine cents on all the e readers, not just the Kindle, all the e readers, and my all of my other books are going to be available for that one week, all six of them for two dollars and ninety nine cents. Mm-hmm. Now was that mm-hmm. a hard sell with Bob? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I had to arm wrestle him. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that's, you that have works to pretty well. Get that one. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That works pretty well because that really gets the word out there, and you know, it's it's a it's a good thing. Well, you know, I think it's good because it gives people a taste. Because I think ninety nine cents is a lot of people will put a dollar down to try to see, hey, do I like this or not? And I think it's a good way for them to jump into the new series, come home, 99 cents, and then they're able to go back and get the other four Laura Nelson books if they want. They can get the test. They can get, you know, uh, and there was one. So they have a lot of different things that they can go back and get. And 99 cents is a really great introductory way to get them involved in, in, in your reading. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, that's the way I usually get involved with new authors. I say, oh, well, how can I lose? 99 sure. cents, you know? And then I read one, and I, and I want to read them all. So that is absolutely, um, that's absolutely true. 
Well, Patricia, we want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us for the first time. It's been so long, and you know that we've known you, and now we're finally able to, you know, get you on the radio. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Wish you guys nothing but the best. Of course, Ocean View's great company, and love the books you guys put out. And I know that I'm going to have a couple more authors on speaking. Um, I think the end of this year, and then going into next year. So, thank you so much for coming on, and hopefully, we'll see you at Thriller Fest in July. We're not sure if we're going to be there or not, but we're going to really try. Well, I hope so, and thank you so much, John. We just appreciate everything you do for everyone, so thank you. Sure, thank you again. I appreciate it, and, and keep it up. Looking forward to seeing what you got going on in the future. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is Pat Gusson, uh, Patricia Gusson, and her latest book is called Come Home. You can go to patriciagusson.com, G-U-S-S-I-N, for more information on her latest book, Come Home. The first in a new series, again, the book comes out November the 7th, so depending on when you're listening to the show, you can get it uh, pre-ordered right now. And 99 cents, man, 99 freaking cents is a great thing to go out. Anybody can spend a buck. Um, You know you've spent $3.50 or 5 bucks at Starbucks. You can spend a buck to go out and and check this out. So make sure you go visit um, wherever you buy books. Again, Amazon, Barnes & whatever, 99 cents. So check it out, and you can get it right now. So we want to thank everybody for coming on. It has been an absolute fabulous uh, show, 90 minutes of great books. We're going to be back here on the 18th of November, and that will probably be our last show of the year for Inside Edition. And Beyond the Cover will be coming up here, I believe, on Tuesday. Uh, we'll get with Jeff. We've had some personal things we're dealing with, so uh, maybe we can get that together. But And make sure you check out suspensemagazine.com for more information and all the stuff we have here on the radio. So until next time, everybody. Thanks so much. Keep reading. Bye-bye.